Good morning, Calvary. It's great to be with you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Thomas, and we're going to continue in a series that we started just last week called Unsung Heroes. And we're looking at less familiar characters in the Bible that teach us some characteristic of our faith that we can imitate and then reveal to us some character trait of God that we can trust. Today we're going to be in probably your favorite book in the Bible, 2 Chronicles. So grab your Bible, iPad, smartphone, fire it up. We're going to 2 Chronicles and we're going to start in chapter 33. As you go there, let's just take a moment to pray and ask God that he would be our teacher today that we would hear from him and that he would speak to each one of us individually. Father, as we open up your word and look at some unfamiliar, unsung heroes that had acts of faith, we pray that you would be our teacher. And Father, we ask that the word of God that's living and active would speak to each one of us. We pray that it would encourage, that it would correct, that it would challenge, that it would invite that it would remind us of your grace and your love that you have for us and, and how you call us to be your children. And so, Lord, we devote this time to you and ask that you would do what only you can do by being the one that gives us ears to hear and eyes to see the words of God. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Second Chronicles. Just the right place. You know, it's 100 degrees outside. I'm melting. Let's go to Second Chronicles. If you've ever been in First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, they're two books that seem to parallel each other as they account for the kings, the reigns of Israel. This is after David and Solomon, and you see that there are good kings and there are bad kings. There are kings that reign for a short period of time. There are kings that reign for a long period of time. And whatever that king was, either good or evil, then the people would live in a country marked by their leadership. And they would either be blessed or they would be under that injustice or the hardship of someone's reign. Chapter 33 begins with this new king, Manasseh, who follows a good king, Hezekiah. And every time a king comes to power, there's a note made of them, whether they were good or evil. So Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. That's quite the tenure. So however he reigned, they experienced his leadership for some time. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. What immediately hits my mind when I read that is the word evil. Evil is not a word that is commonly used in the vernacular of our day. We might talk about things being bad or not preferable, but rarely will someone use the word evil to talk about someone's actions. And here, the chronicler is saying this king acted in ways that are evil, in that he practiced what the nations had practiced, those nations that God drove out before Israel as they came into the promised land. So if you remember, God brings Israel out of Egypt and he brings them into a place of promise. And there are nations that are occupying this land that God has given to Abraham and his descendants. And they have practices of worship that are detestable to God. 
And so God has driven them out of the land of promise. And, and here are, is a king who now welcomes the worship of these nations into Israel. And so these are the things that he starts to do, in which, the, which the Lord calls evil. Verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashereths. So this is a, a formalized religious practice to worship the Baals and the Asherah. And worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars, get this, in the house of the Lord. So not only does he welcome this worship into the country, but he actually brings it in to the temple of God, where only God is supposed to be worshipped. He starts erecting these, these idols and these poles and their practices in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and, non and necromancers, which is magic or those who try to awaken the dead or commune with the dead. He brings all this worship. He did much evil, there's our word again, in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger, to be frustrated, to be upset with his people. So here's this king, the leader of Israel, who looks at the worship of neighboring countries and says, it's welcomed in our land. And not only is it welcomed in our land, it's welcome in the temple, the household of God, that you might worship here. Now, we, we talk about worship here at Calvary as this. Worship is worth-ship. It's attributing worth to something, something that you value, that you, you, you would give your time or your attention to, you would devote yourself to. That's worship, worship. And worship is not simply an organized religion's activities. It is a human activity. Every human being, whether you consider yourself spiritual or not, is a worshiper. Every human is a worshiper. They find something that's of great value to them, that they attribute worth to, and they become a worshiper of something. And so here this king has said, your worship, your worship is permitted here in the temple. And part of the activities that you see here, this is also accounted for in kings, the worship of the Baals and the worship of Asherah poles is evil. So you see the king here, in the worship of the Baals, he actually took his son, down to this valley and sacrificed him. Part of the worship of the Baals was the murder of innocent children, putting to death their offspring. And part of the worship of the Asherah poles was this sexualized experience, specifically with prostitutes and male prostitutes, that you would have up at the temple. And you look at this and you go, man, can you imagine a culture that puts to death the offspring of its country, and then worships its sexual experience. You're like, I'm living in it. I'm living in it. 
And so here this king has done these things that are detestable to God. That's not how God has called his people to live. He calls his people to live distinctly different lives. And so here's this king who has set it all up in the household of God. And we want to ask this question, how does that happen? Like, how, how does that drift happen from the temple where people are worshiping the one true God and then being crowded out by the worship of other nations so that the primary worship that's happening is of the Baals and the Astras, of the omens and the horoscopes and looking at the stars and palm readers, and it's all acceptable. No one questions it. Well, this king here has a judgment of God and actually tries to correct his behavior. There's an amazing, drastic change in how he leads the latter part of his kingdom, but the DNA of what he's put in is not lost on his son. And so as this king is replaced by his son, verse 21, Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made, and he served them. So now there's a culture shift in Israel. How does that happen? Well, here we're going to see our unsung hero is going to give us insight of how this has occurred. We're going to look at this priest by the name of Hezekiah, or sorry, of um, Hilkiah. Chapter 34, verse 1 is the beginning of a new reign, a king named Josiah, who comes to reign at a very young age. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. It means like he follows the ways of God, the straight and the narrow Verse 3, for in the eighth year of his reign, so this is when he's 16 years old. Are there some 16-year-olds or 14 to 16-year-olds in the room? Like, that's, that's our young youth. He starts sensing God's call on his life. And maybe you've experienced that where you're like, not quite sure, but you just see that your heart is directionally towards the Lord. While he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, now he's 20, in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all the high places. As he has his heart turned towards the Lord, he's convicted, and he actually begins to act on these convictions. And all the things that were set up prior to him that are evil to the Lord, he starts tearing down in quite the colorful fashion. You'll see he's like tearing it down and not just putting it away, but I mean destroying it to ashes. Check this out. In verse 4. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke into pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them. And he scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. So he makes dust of all of this religious ornaments. And then he scatters it in this action of this is detestable over their graves. In fact, he digs up the priest's bones that served at these altars, that sacrificed these children, and he makes dust of his bones. Check this out. Verse 5, he also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and as far as Neptali, 
in their ruins all around. He broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. And then he returned to Jerusalem. It's the capital city. He's doing this at 20 years old because of the response of his calling towards the Lord. Verse 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign, now he's 26. I mean, this guy is old now. He's got it all figured out. He's a wise sage. He's 26 years old. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shephan, the son of Azalah, and Masai, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord, or of his, or sorry, the house of the Lord, his God. So then he gathers his servants. He says, okay, we're going to start gathering resources from people who want to give generously to now the repair. We have purged the land and we've purged the temple and now we're going to repair it and restore the temple and the worship here. And so he begins to call on the people to bring resources and they do, they, they bring resources and this is where we meet our unsung hero at the time where they have acquired the resource and they're going to start bringing it out to pay certain workers to repair the temple. This is verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shephan. So you just imagine this. For maybe 60 years, God's word has been lost. Until one day, the priest who's serving at the temple, it's like cleaning out a broom closet, stumbles upon this book, these scrolls. Like, what is this? And he pulls it out. And it's the book of the law, the moral codes, the, the, the words of God of who God is, who his people are, how they are to live, what is good, right, and pleasing. What has God called us not to do, to abstain from? What judgments will he bring on his people if they participate in these evils? And here is this book that has been neglected, and the people have no knowledge of the word of God. So when we ask ourselves, how is it that the worship of these nations finds its place in the house of God? It's because the people of God have neglected the word of God. It's been lost. Where was God's word lost? Was it found in a foreign country? Was it stolen from them? No, it was lost in the house of the Lord. You see this? If the people of God stopped looking into the word of God. There should be two copies of the book of the law in Israel at all times. One was possessed by the priests. The other was for the king. In Deuteronomy, it points out that every single time a new king would come, they are required to make a personal copy of the book of the law for them. And they would write it out by hand which would accomplish two things. One, they would have a personal copy to be able to see how they are to reign. What are the laws of the land? 
also they would be familiar with it. That their reign would be shaped by the book of the law. The reason they would be just kings, righteous kings, upholding the weak, caring for the immigrant. Well, the reason they would reign that way is because they had written out their own personal copy, which hasn't been done. The book of the law was ignored. A pastor who teaches on the East Coast makes this comment of them losing the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And I think this is just so pervasive for us today. He says, in a culture becoming increasingly secularized, one in which there is growing hostility to the Bible, we think that the greatest threat to God's word is the animosity of the world, when in actuality the apathy of the church is its greatest threat. If the word is lost, it will not be because the world snatched it out of our hands. It will be because we lost it in the house of the Lord. And we just stop preaching it. We stop opening it. We stop looking at it and allowing it to shape us, direct us, form us as a people. The greatest threat is for the word of God to be neglected in the house of the Lord. Recently, we were doing a large search for a new children's director. I'm so thankful for Jenny Fleetmeyer being on the team. She's awesome. And we were interviewing several people, and, and one interviewee had commented how much he had loved Calvary. And we were talking to him and said, well, you know, you've looked at us. You've kind of looked at our statement of faith. You've watched some messages. You've poked around on our website. What do you think? And he said, man, Calvary is amazing. What you guys have is the culture and the heart towards the community and the world and the ways in which you serve one another. It seems so great. And I'm, I'm, lo I'm loving the messages. Except, Thomas, man, you guys use a lot of Bible. He said, you, you wear me out with the amount of Bible you use on Sunday. Because I'm not used to it. The church that I have served at only grabs a few verses here and there and then gives a sermon on opinions of the pastor. And two things I thought, one, probably shouldn't hire him to be on staff. <laughs> but that's how often so many of us feel, is we're not used to being around the word of God. And maybe you have felt that, like, man, Thomas, you wear me out with the amount of Bible we read on Sunday. And I just want to say, that's an honest place to be. I've been there before. But that just means that you have a weak muscle that we would love to strengthen. We would love to have a strong muscle that you'd be able to engage in the Bible. Because this is sometimes a really hard book to understand. See, when Hilkiah found the book of the law, he didn't find this whole book. Okay, this wasn't in print in his day, he found the book of the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. So you've seen me show you this really silly animation before. This is like the bookshelf of the Bible. So I just want you to remind yourself that this isn't one singular book. This is like a library of many books put together. That there are different genres in here. Genres of history. Genres of poetry. Genres of letters. Eyewitness accounts. There is apocalyptic language. This book was written in multiple languages over thousands of years by 66, or by six, 66 different books by multiple authors. And so it can seem daunting. One of the things that keeps people from opening their Bible is it just seems really confusing. 
And so what I did was I grabbed a few resources from my shelf and Chris's shelf and Lindsay's shelf and Jay's and said, okay, here are four resources. I just put them down here. After service, if you feel like, man, the Bible is really daunting, how do you access this? How do you understand it? And then how do you delight in it? Here are just a few of our resources that we've used over the years that we really enjoy. And I just encourage you after service, come up, snap a picture of them, and then you can grab it for yourself. It helps us understand what this book is. Because sometimes it can be challenging. But for most of us, the reason we don't access this book, I think, is because we're really busy. My mom would always say, the first thing to go when we get really busy is the Word of God. It's because you, you sit down for your morning devotions, you, you open it up, and then you're like, oh, wait, I forgot to. And then you run over here to go do something. And then you wrap that up and you sit back down like, okay, I only have about 20 more minutes. And you look at it and go, oh, I forgot to. And eventually you just never even go here to open it because you're always doing something and this finds itself in a broom closet. Let me just ask you this question as your pastor. If the worship of the world crowds out the worship of God when we neglect the word of God, where is this in your life? I know we're really busy. But we find time for the things that we really value. Have there been things that just crowd out your time looking at the words of God? I mean, like, think about that. God has spoken. He's, he's spoken so that you would know him. That you would experience his goodness and his grace and the way that he's formed you and shaped you and, and how he's formed life that it would go well with you. And he's, he's laid it out in many different ways. All saying the same thing. It's amazing. It's like, it's like he wrote this thing through human authors so that you would know him, that you would know who you are. Where is this in the priority of your life? I was talking to the student ministries who got back from El Salvador. And Natalie was telling me, she was just to sit here in church this morning was so convicting because she had already felt like when she was down in El Salvador, they would go out and they would read the word of God to people because they don't have their own personal copies of God's word in their language. And, and the copies they do have, some of them aren't able to read. So they would show up in any town or village like, can I read to you the word of God? And they're like, yes, please read to me God's word. And here we're like, I got 15 translations. I have access to multiple translations on my smartphone immediately. Access is not our issue. Are we allowing it to be neglected to the point that it finds a backroom closet and then we welcome in other things that we deem more worthy into our life? So can we be like Hilkiah and go home and say, I, ha I haven't taken this off the shelf in some time. And so I'm going to take it off. <sighs> And I'm going to dust it off, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to allow God's word to continue to shape and form me, to steady me. My friend Jerry, who would admit to all of us that he's a pretty ornery, aggressive dude, had made a commitment many years ago to read this cover to cover every single year. It's what a mentor of his told him to do. And he was talking to some lady telling her that he reads the Bible cover to cover every single year. And she said, oh, are you a pastor? He said, no, I'm, I'm way too honorary to be a pastor. He goes, then why do you do it? He says, this is the only thing that keeps me sane.
is reading God's word. So the neglect of God's word brings the worship of the world in. And, and you might hear that story from 2 Chronicles and go, that's crazy, man. There's no way we would let other religions in this space to worship it. But our culture has its own religion that it wants you to follow. It does. And how do you know there's a formalized religion? Well, they have a few things to formalize religion. We have these things too. We have creeds and confessions. Like this is what we believe. This is how we would say that, how we'd articulate it. And then we have a calendar in which shapes our year and say these are holy months. The people of Israel had creeds and confessions and holy months. We as Christians have creeds and confessions and holy months. Think Easter as an example. And our culture does too. You, you've seen the signs that people put up in their office spaces, their homes, on the back of their cars. This is what we believe. Creedal statements and confessions. And then they have a calendar. Right now we're in the midst of one of their holy months in which they assemble and participate and worship the things that they find valuable, how they identify themselves. And so we as Christians can allow those loud voices to become a voice in our churches and in our homes if we continue to neglect the word of God. Now the word of God, remember this, teaches us all things. If you were here last week, it teaches us how to love people that we disagree with. How to love people and give our life away to people that we disagree with. So it's not we have animosity towards anyone. We have the love of Jesus Christ. And, and how did Jesus love us? We looked at this last week. He loved us while we were still, what was the word? Sinners. Enemies of God. And so that's how we love. But we don't want to be lost in a drift because we neglect the word of God. Especially in our church, but also in our personal lives. They lost the word of God in the temple of God, did they not? Where does the temple of God today? What does Paul say? He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And then what does he call us? He calls us the priesthood. Of believers that you're a priest, you're a priest, I'm a priest, and we're the temple. Where is the word of God being attuned to in your temple as the priest? We want to be like a hero like Hilkiah to say, I found the book of the law on Sunday. I have forgotten its value, its worth, its goodness, how it stabilizes me, shapes me, forms me to be this loving, generous, caring, truthful person in the world. And so I go home and I open it up. And what's our response when it convicts us? Because you spend any time in this book, man, I'm convicted. Well, let's look at, see what happens to Josiah. You guys doing all right? You guys with me? I'll sound like I lost you guys. <laughs> Hang in there. We've got 10 minutes. Chapter 34, verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 18. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book 
And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. This, this is a visible act of sorrow, of humility, and repentance. To hear God's word read and say, man, we have not lived this way. And look at what God says. He tears his clothes. We, we call this repentance. Is humility. To let God's word shape us. He tears his clothes. And then he tells him to go and inquire. This is verse 21. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found. For great is the wrath of God that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. So go, go talk to the prophetess. He, he goes to this woman named Huldah, and Huldah inquires of the Lord for them. And Huldah tells him, go tell the king that God's judgment on his people that have been stubborn and have not repented and kings that have come before you refuse to follow the ways of the Lord. Tell him, I'm bringing my judgment on them. And right after Josiah dies, they go into exile through, through a conquering kingdom of Babylon. But this is what he says, this is what she says to Josiah because of his response. Verse 26, but the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants. And you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you declares the Lord. And he says, he will not bring judgment while Josiah is king. You will reign in peace until your, your kingship is over. What does that tell us about God? That God is always gracious and merciful and ready to forgive those who humble themselves before him. What a character trait of our God, that the vilest amongst us, the worst sinners, we could have done all the things of worships to Baal. We could have done the things of the Asherah poles. We come before the Lord and say, Lord, would you forgive me? And his grace and his mercy is poured out on us. That's who our God is, is ready to forgive and pour out grace. What a character trait of God that we can trust. So then what Josiah does, he gathers all the people at this point. Verse 30, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and its inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, everybody. Everyone who's considered worthy in the community, those who the community views not worthy, everybody's coming with the king. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. So this king shows up as the leader, and in his leadership says, we haven't done well. 
but you need to know what God says. And he reads the book, not so that only he knows it, but so that all the people know what God has called us to do. And then before the congregation commits, this is the kind of leader I will be. I will follow the ways of the Lord all the days of my life. And then he calls the people who are in attendance to say, we will too. That's my commitment to you, is to be a Bible teaching church. To always open up the scriptures. To not come here and give you tips from Thomas. But to do my best to help us understand the words of the Lord. And then to say, I want to follow this. And I call you to follow this. And experience the rightness, goodness, delight of walking with the Lord. What's the best treasure to be found when you open the Bible is you find Jesus. The word of God made flesh. This is what Jesus tells us about himself. This is Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Jesus, the word made flesh, says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I haven't come so that you take this and put it on the back shelf. I've come to fulfill them. All the ways that the prophets were pointing to me, the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, I have come to fulfill them because there's no way you can be made right with God by trying to follow the laws. We can't do it. And so Jesus says, I'll do it. And all those who hope in me, my righteousness will be your righteousness. My life will be your life. My death will as be as, as though you died in my place, as, as me on the cross, so that you can have life everlasting. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. This isn't on the screen, but he goes on and says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He calls his people to be people of the book. Later on, the New Testament leaders, the apostles, are, are giving to the church instructions of, of what does the church do when they gather until the Lord returns. So one of the apostles is a man named Paul, and he's writing to his mentee, whose name is Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, I'm going to come to you. This is his first letter to him. I'm going to come to you, but here are certain things that you want to devote yourself to until I arrive. Chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. When you come into church, expect to hear the scriptures read, to be exhorted, encouraged by them, to be taught the scriptures of God. Devote yourself until I get there to the scriptures. In his second letter, Paul says this to Timothy. Right after he talks about what the importance of the scripture, like this book is not a dead book. He says, all scripture is breathed out. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the men and women of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures inform us how to be complete and be ready for good works. And then he says this to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Like don't, don't beat people to death with this thing. But with patience and endurance, build up the church with your teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Man, that describes a day like today, doesn't it? And this is just my love for you. To say, if this has found a broom closet in your life, to bring it back out like our unsung hero and say, I have found the words of God. And I'm going to find time in my life to open this back up and investigate what God has said. Who he has said he is. Who he has said I am. What does he call me to do that I would experience eternal life now and forever? How does he call me to live as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a child, as a neighbor? How do I live in generosity and kindness? How do I live with truth and conviction? How do I live like my Savior Jesus Christ who was willing to give his life away? That's what our unsung hero teaches us today. Is to not neglect the teaching of the word. To not neglect the reading of the word. Because if the word is ignored, we create room for other things to occupy it. And for the Christian, for the follower of, of Jesus, we just say, Lord, give me a new appetite today to be in this word. Let's pray for that. Lord, we come before you and we want to be faithful to you. And Father, we know that each one of us has failed in so many ways. And so we trust in the character of our God who is gracious and merciful to us, who's so ready to forgive whoever comes to him. And Father, I just pray for my friends. I pray that you would give them an appetite. Lord, there are things that have captured our attention, that we have given our time and our devotion to. Lord, we ask that you would renew an appetite to be in your word. Give us hunger pains that nothing else will satisfy unless we meet with you around your word. And so, Lord, I just pray for, for you to speak to every single one of us right now. Lord, Lord, show each one of us where our Bibles are. Lord, show us where it sits in our, in our value system, in our priorities. And then, Lord, I, I just pray against, I, I pray against condemning voice of the devil. I pray against the condemnation that can often fall on people and tell them how lazy they are and stupid they are and no good they are. Lord, I pray that they would not hear that voice, but they would hear the voice of the Father, the loving voice of the Father, inviting them in to meet with him.
to meet with you? Would, would they hear your voice? And so, Lord, we just ask that you would put your hands around this church, that this church would never neglect your word, so that we would never neglect your worship. We want to be worshipers. And so let your word inform us of how to worship. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.